Well, we're continuing in the book of Ruth in chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ruth chapter two as we begin. Did you know that the average American watches five hours of TV every day? So if you're here this morning and you don't watch any TV, that means someone else is watching 10 to make up for yours. Every day, we collectively spend 30 billion on movies every year, just in America. $30 billion on movies. Now why do I give you those stats? Well, to me, that means, it gives truth to understanding that we are story-addicted creatures. We're, we love stories. We're created to love stories, actually. We, we feel comfortable when we are engrossed in a story. It could be a movie, it could be a TV show or a book, but we like stories. We, 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 we tend to feel fulfilled when we're observing a story, whether it's fiction or, or fact right before our eyes. We like stories. And you may say, well, I don't watch movies or, or TV, but if you read the newspaper every day, like my father has for the last 65 years, you like stories too. Some are fact, some are fiction. If you like politics and are following the election, you most definitely like fiction. We like stories. It is part of our culture. And there's also something in the heart of humanity that is searching for redemption. We understand that there's evil in this world. We see it. We understand also that we're powerless to save ourselves. And so we look for a savior. And what we have here in the book of Ruth is a story. It's a romantic story. It's the story uh, the romance of redemption that we see in this, this book. It's engaging. Um, how many of you, I asked you last week, I asked you to read Ruth chapter two. So raise your hand if you read Ruth chapter two. Oh, a small percentage. Okay, we need to work on that for next week. I want you to read Ruth chapter three this next week because I think as you read it more and you study and you just look at it, just read it over every day, you soak it up, this story will captivate you. It will really um, just shock you of how God works. The author, the guy writing the book, is really good at writing. I'm gonna mention a few things this morning that you'll want you to see. You know, last week we looked at the first chapter of Ruth, and in that chapter we saw the difficulty of misery and emptiness when God removes things in our lives that we begin to love more than him. God removes people out of the life of Naomi. God removes Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, her husband and sons. And God's sovereign hand is working in Naomi's life. She, she wants peace, but yet there's war in her soul. Do I trust God when things don't go the way I think they should go? Well, this morning, we're gonna look at Ruth chapter two and see how the, this story continues. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ruth chapter two if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know. There's some in the foyer. We'd love for you to take one home. Uh, most people usually do or have an access to their cell phone, so open up your Bible on your digital device or the one in your lap here and look at Ruth chapter two and follow with me as I read. Starting in verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. 
And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she came, excuse me, and she had some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in any field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have to come together as the body of Christ here in Edgewood and to worship you. That we can come together and hear the reading of your word, to worship in song, to worship in giving and prayer. And now, Father, opportunity to worship you through the preaching of your word. And we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would cause us to come away changed based upon your word the impact of what you have for us this morning. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. We left off last week at the end of Ruth chapter one with Naomi and Ruth making their way 
from Moab back home to, to Naomi's home at Bethlehem. And that last verse of Ruth, chapter one, verse 22 says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That leads in to chapter two. God is setting them up. They, they again, uh, walking away from a life of pain. Ruth walking away from her family, her, her mom and dad. She's never known any other country except Moab and she's now leaving and Naomi walking away from pain and death and loss. And God is bringing them back to Bethlehem. God has lifted the famine. There's hope in Bethlehem. But as you saw, I remember from last week at the end of chapter one, Naomi doesn't see the hope. Naomi's problem is the struggle that many of us here experience. In the dark night of our souls, we begin to imagine and worry about the worst possible scenario. There are even those maybe here that conjure up contradictory worst case scenarios to worry about. There are some of you here this morning that would win a gold medal in worrying if it was part of the Olympics. Well, versed in this, you begin to tell yourself that God has abandoned you and that you have no hope. And the Bible teaches us time and time again that as a worthless pursuit, we shouldn't worry. In, frank, in fact, it's, it's a waste of time. God doesn't promise to give you grace to survive all the scenarios that you dream up. But he will give you grace for the situations that he brings into your life. We tend to forget that. In the midst of all the worrying that we have in life circumstances, we, we tend to think God's gonna give grace in the midst of that but it's usually just a situation that he allows to come into our life. And Jesus said, which of you by being anxious or by worrying can add a single hour to the span of his life? We can't, and there's no use in worrying. We're much better off at trusting God. And this is the lesson that Naomi needs to learn in, in Ruth chapter two. So let's see what happens to Naomi. You know, the beginning of the chapter, the author clues us into the story that Naomi had a relative to her husband on the side of his family, and his name was Boaz. What's, what's said of Boaz? Well, in, in verse one, it says that he's a worthy man. Literally, in the Hebrew, it translates a mighty man of valor. In its simplest sense, the expression means a man of substance and wealth. He's a man of standing, upstanding. Uh, he's known in his community. He's a guy that in the community, the parents say, hey, as you grow up, be like Boaz. He's that type of guy. He's a guy that they admire and they want to look and live their life after. And our, the author wants us to see this. You know, Ruth, as it continues in the first couple of verses, Ruth realizes that the situation that they're in is bleak. They do not have food. And it seems as though at this point, Naomi is of no help. Verse two gives us insight in the mental state of Naomi. I would dare say that Naomi is depressed. She has suffered much loss in her life. She comes home now to Bethlehem and she's ashamed She's tired, she's mourning, she has no husband, no sons, and she brings a foreigner. She has lost everything. Her life's in shambles. Ruth, who's lost what she's known, her husband, seems to be responding differently than Naomi. And she knows that if she doesn't do something quickly, they're gonna starve. And so she asks Naomi, can I go to the field and glean? Can I get grain so that we can eat? 
And Ruth is wise in her statement of seeking someone to let her glean the fields. And let me explain that. Under the Old Testament law, which God set up for this situation, the poor were not simply dependent on the handouts of the government. Rather, they were allowed to glean in the fields of the harvesters around the edges, picking up the scraps that were left behind. Farmers, landowners, were required to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that there would be a better possibility for the poor and for the widows to find a way to supply food for their families. This is what God set up. You can read it in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 if you want to study it. Deuteronomy 24 talks about this. It gives you a good understanding and insight to what God set up for them. So why would Ruth then mention that she should look for favor of the landowner? Wasn't it her right to have this? God set it up in the law. You know, as you learn from Ruth, though, in this book, she doesn't think of her rights very often. She wouldn't make a very good American. We tend to think of our rights quite a bit. In fact, it's kind of ingrained in us, isn't it? We have these rights. We need to fight for our rights. How does that gel with Christianity? How does that gel when we submit and follow God? What kind of friend would you be to Ruth? You know, you hear the situation, you happen to be in the room, and she says, I want to find favor with the landowner. Are you the friend that says, well, let's look here, Ruth. Let's open the Old Testament law and see your rights. You have the rights, Ruth. You don't need to ask for favor. Just go get what's yours. Would that be you as a friend? Or would you come alongside her and say, you know, Ruth, I'm going to pray with you that you would find favor, that a landowner would allow you to come and to, and to get and to glean what you need. You know, as a Moabite and as a widow, Ruth was qualified on two counts to glean. And yet for these two reasons, she doesn't expect it to happen. She's entrusting herself to someone else. And so Ruth volunteers herself to go and glean and provide food for them. And in doing so, she's making herself vulnerable. She's stepping out in faith into a new country and to new people and hoping that a God-fearing landowner would make room for a poor, widowed, Moabite woman to work. Now, faith doesn't simply sit around waiting for provision to start, to drop from heaven. No, we're called to do what we can. And as we do what we can, we trust God that he'll do and give what we need. So verse three, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. You know, this is one of the key statements in the book of Ruth, okay? I, I don't know what your version says. Mine says she happened to come. Underline that. You know, I said this before. If you, this is your Bible. You can underline it. If it's someone else's, please don't. Uh, but underline that. This is significant. It literally reads in the Hebrew, her chance chanced. Now, the author doesn't believe in chance or luck. That's not what he's trying to, to, to give us here. He's painting a picture for us, the listener. And he's, he's saying, take notice what is happening here. Her chance chanced the portion of the field that was belonging to Boaz. Now, who's Boaz? Who's Boaz? We're going to learn about it. But he's the family of Elimelech. You know, this is, as the author, this is just a brilliant way of writing. And just, just so 
happened to fall on the land belonging to Boaz. He's, he's in this way pointing to us and says, look at the sweet providence of God. Do you see it? Do you see it in the text there? You know, Ruth and Naomi, from the reader's point of view, have been dealt a difficult hand. They've lost everything in Moab. They've, they've moved 30 to 40 miles to Bethlehem and they arrive in shame and discouragement. They're wore out and they're hungry. And Ruth now heads out in fear because she's not sure what she's gonna find. She needs favor and food. And when it seems like the dark clouds of life are pressing in, getting closer and wiping out any remnants of joy, she stumbles upon Boaz's field. I couldn't help but smile when I read that. None of you were smiling at me though. (laughs) The providence of God in the midst of this. By chance, yeah, right. I know God. John Flavel, one Puritan author, said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can, read, it can only be read backwards. That is the providence of God. It may seem like happenstance, just chance. But as they walk farther and down, they look back and see, wow, look what God did. Look what God brought into my life. And for us, the reader, the author is screaming at us in verse three. Look, do you see the hand of God right here in Ruth's life? He is not unaware. He's not uninvolved. He's very much involved. So many in our world today don't believe it. They don't see it. They think that their life is just a bunch of accidents, just a bunch of chances. And you may be here this morning thinking and processing that same way. You think that life is just a bunch of accidents happening. You know, if this this happens, then possibly this might happen and this would happen and then I might get what I think I need. But that's not how life works. That's not what the Bible teaches. Your life is in the middle of a story. Your life is in the midst of other characters even seated here in the story. And God is the author. And then maybe that makes you feel uncomfortable. But the story's not over. We like stories, right? We, I brought that out in the beginning. We, we like stories. We like to read stories or watch stories. We, I think the best part of it, though, we like to see what happens at the end, right? Do any of you really get engaged in a book and read about halfway through and say, eh, it's good enough? maybe not on purpose. We like to see how it wraps up. We're captivated by stories. We remember stories. God is the best author. There's no author that can compare with God. And and for me, when I read scripture, when I study scripture, the thought that God is behind all of it brings incredible comfort to my soul so much so that I can't really express how much comfort comes that God is behind it all. And as you read through the book of Ruth, we get to see how the story ends. We can read the whole thing. We can go to chapter four in just a few weeks, Lord willing, and see what God does after this tragedy. And what God does is beautiful, but we're not there yet. So look at verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. 
So God brings Boaz into the story now. And as I said earlier, Boaz is not just some guy. He's not just a landowner. No, what you have here is a God-soaked man. A God-soaked man. He's not a Sunday Christian. John Piper wrote about Boaz. He said, if you want to know a man's relation to God, it helps to find out how far God has saturated him down to the details of his everyday life. Boaz, look at him. He has no fear of what others think of his religion, of who he worships. He is a righteous, worthy man of valor. He is a wealthy man, good at business, but he looks to bring God into all of this. He's unashamed. He greets them with God. I was saved at the age of nine. I was raised in a Christian home. I seemed to live a pretty obedient life growing up. My wife, maybe not so much. I'm just kidding. I didn't get as much trouble. I didn't have much public sin. I, decided, I, I, I chose with my family to attend church, to be involved and to serve. I loved being a part of it, but when it came to sharing my testimony as a kid, it was non-existent. It became more clear to me looking back in my life a few years ago, getting connected to a friend, a Facebook acquaintance actually from high school and finding out this acquaintance is now a pastor and, and, and pastoring a church in the town in which I grew up. And I remember him saying to me via Facebook, he says, Jeff, I didn't know you were a Christian in high school. That wasn't comforting. You know, bothered me. I wasn't like Boaz. Are you like Boaz? Are you living in this world in a way that God's presence shoots through your existence? Are you a God-soaked person? You know, the, the text doesn't say that Boaz preached a sermon. The text doesn't say that Boaz led in a devotional for his workers or gathered prayer requests around there before they started. The text says that Boaz greeted them with God. Who, who he was was displayed in his words to, to those that he had a business with. Do your coworkers, do your classmates, do your friends, your neighbors, do they, do they know that you follow God? Would they be shocked to find out that you're a Christian? Boaz gives testimony of who he serves. So I'm going to say this a lot this morning, but be like Boaz. Be like Boaz. Verse five, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The love story is beginning. The women are excited. The men are kind of, The knight enters the scene, Boaz, and he notices Ruth. And he, he questions his foreman, over, the guy overseeing the workers, and, and says, whose young woman is this? The original Hebrew is, check her out. Not really. I could see him walking to her and saying, how you doing? <laughs> he's, he's captivated by Ruth. He's drawn to her. He notices her. He doesn't ask who is she. He says, whose is she? Meaning, which family does this girl belong to? 
Where does she fit in society? And the response from the foreman, Boaz, this woman, she's who's everybody's talking about. Everyone's talking about her. She's the one that came back from Moab. She's the Moabite. She's the foreigner. The foreman has high praise of Ruth. As he says that she's come at early morning, has continued to work except for a short rest. And in verse eight, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman, lest your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. How's that for an Old Testament pickup line in verse eight? My daughter. It's not the sharpest pickup line you've ever heard, but when you really think about it, this is an incredible way that Boaz and way he's talking to her. He's, he's using this as a term of endearment. My daughter, listen to me. Here, he repeats himself. Don't go and glean another field. Don't, don't go away from here. He says, keep close. I want you to circle that. Keep close. It makes the same Hebrew word that we looked at last week in Ruth 1.14 when Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the same idea. It's the same idea that we see in Genesis 2.24 when the picture of a, of a marriage of a husband and a, and a wife and the husband leaving his family and clinging, cleaving to his wife. Boaz is communicating something to Ruth here. And so the picture is keep close you can, I can, for me, I can imagine Boaz being emphatic in his language and is using his hands because I use my hands, so I'm assuming he does too. And you can imagine for him saying, don't go to that field or that field or that field. Stay in this field. Stay here. You'll be provided for in this field. You'll be protected in this field. And it was common that women in this day, particular foreigners, were abused and mistreated at the very least, they were insulted constantly in the fields. And he says, don't go there. Stay here. You're protected. You'll be provided for. And when you're thirsty, just talk to my young men. They'll get you a drink. I'll take care of everything. And what's Ruth's response to all this? Look at verse 10. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Men, I hope you're paying attention here. Boaz is a gentleman. Women, are you paying attention? Because if you're not married and you're looking for a man, he better line up with Boaz. Men, if you're here, you need to line up with Boaz. Be like Boaz. His response and how he treats her and supplies for her is incredible. He desires for her to continue on, to supply for herself, and not only herself, but for Naomi. Boaz is an honorable man. The kindness of Boaz is extraordinary. 
And just maybe, men, if you do this, she might call you Lord. Maybe not. Boaz allows Ruth to glean, to get all that she can and, and sets it up for the women to be there, be with the women and the protection there. And he gave access to Ruth to the water supply and he instructed the workers to, to not disturb her, but to protect her. And he treats her like she belongs. Ruth calls herself a foreigner. She knows her place, what the world says. And yet Boaz doesn't see this as a dividing issue. He sees her and shows grace to her, even though she didn't belong. Rather than emphasizing the social distance between the two of them and belittling her, he affirms her personhood and elevated her to the same level as the other women there. Boaz's actions are that of a redeemer. Do you see it in the text here? A redeemer seeks the destitute as his family. The redeemer seeks the destitute as his family and a redeemer saves the destitute from harm. He protects them. Can you imagine the impact that this has on Ruth at this moment? These are probably the first kind words that she has heard since she left her country. She's living with Naomi the peach, who's depressed and down and discouraged. And this is the first time where she's now affirmed and loved and cared for. This landowner would go above and beyond what was required for a normal landowner. And Boaz was not normal. Why would a man of his substance, of his character, risk his reputation on a Moabite woman. Doesn't he read, doesn't he know the Moabites? And in all this, as the reader, can you see God in this? You need to see God in this. He's right in the center of all of this. How would this man, this upright man, this worthy man, even waste his time, his words to talk to a foreigner? He didn't have to. He could have had his foreman do all the talking. He could have been very honorable, just allowing her to glean on the corners. He would have obeyed what God's word would have said. But this is God working. This is the the sweet providence of God in the life of Ruth. Ruth, an outsider, a foreigner, finally feels welcome. You know, she understands God better because of Boaz, because of the kindness of Boaz. He preaches the gospel to her with his life. And just for the record, just so you know as a reader, Ruth does not know who Boaz is. He's just a landowner. That's all she knows at this point. She doesn't see any connection yet. God's still writing the story. And God is working in ways that are beyond our understanding of Ruth. Well, the, the love story continues. It takes off, in fact. Boaz, I believe at this point, is very smitten with Ruth. And what you have in verse 14 is their first date. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. 
and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Boaz invites Ruth for dinner. A redeemer serves the destitute at his table. Love is budding. You can see it here, their first date at the barley garden. You guys know those restaurants, right? Where the bread is free? It's a good date. Go ahead, honey. Have as much bread as you'd like. With four kids, we like those restaurants because we just say, have at it. The water's free too, so just go for it. You can get in and out in $20, so it's all good. But this is normal for Boaz. This is a normal meal. But I believe it's their first date. And Ruth, being shy and coy, doesn't sit next to him. She'd sit next to the reapers. He's going to have to work for this. But he serves Ruth, he says. And she eats. She eats so much that she's satisfied, and then she stashes a little bit to the side for later. Nothing fancy for our point of view, but here is Ruth. Can you imagine at this point, sitting down at the table of a landowner, all that's been given her, and now she's eating a meal. When she woke up in the morning, she faced Naomi, who's depressed. She realizes, if I don't go and work, we're not going to eat. And so her hope in the morning was to leave and to find, hopefully, favor from a landowner so that she could work, that she could get barley to come home so they can eat. And here she is, sitting at the table of this worthy landowner, eating as much as she can. You know, I can imagine him saying, are you sure you want more? Here, have some more. The pure joy of having enough to eat seems to be completely lost on us as Americans. Is there ever a time that we struggle to eat enough? It's usually the opposite, right? We're used to satisfying our appetites three times a day and then getting a few snacks in between. But for them, a foreigner, one that is destitute, one that has no hope, she's not sure where she'll get her next meal. This is a feast. She was satisfied at the table of her Redeemer. But that's not all for Ruth. Look at verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the, from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz even directs his workers to be deliberate in leaving for her more bundles to glean. Boaz is continuing to serve Ruth, and he's doing it at a personal cost. He's losing money to give to her. This is his way of opening the door for Ruth. He's truly a noble man, not only looking to serve Ruth, but to serve her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz is honorable. And a redeemer shows the destitute, or excuse me, showers the destitute with his grace. A redeemer showers the destitute with his grace. And this is what we see from Boaz. And Boaz instructs his servants not to humiliate the foreigner, but to serve her. What Boaz does here weighs heavily upon my heart as I studied this, and again, looking at this through the lens of what God has brought us through. We know what it's like to move to a new country and not feel normal. You just don't feel normal. It's new, it's, you're, you're foreign. 
We moved to Sweden in 2013 and we felt out of place. Even though there was many similar things, it was different. And it's bound to happen for anyone moving from one country to another. Everything was different. I would get frustrated going to the post office. You'd think that would be easy, but it wasn't. And part of it was they do it differently than I'm used to. And so my natural response, and a lot of people being foreign say, why do they do it that way? That doesn't seem right. Have you been to America? We do everything right back there. At least I thought that. But have you ever found yourself out in the, in the community, out running errands, out at a grocery store, and you see someone struggling in a store? And you begin to realize, you hear that they speak another language. And they're frustrated, they're confused, maybe bewildered at what they should do. They're not, they're not sure what to do. They're confused. What's our response to them? Or what of those people that come to our country and they don't speak English? They don't understand the customs in our country. They might struggle to adapt. What's our response to them? Have you ever said or even thought, you know, if you come into America, you better speak English? What's our response to foreigners? I can tell you from experience. The high stress, just going to the grocery store. You know, you think it's so easy. I do it all the time now and have no stress. I can get bread for my wife without any problem, I think, most of the time. No stress. And when we go to the store, the stress of being in line and and the, the checkout person speaking the language that they have been born and raised speaking and and asking me a question in a foreign tongue and me trying to process what it is. I don't understand what they're saying. I'm looking back and I see a line of people that are looking at me angry, like answer the question guy. And she's asking me again. She does it louder and faster. And I'm like, I don't know. And all she wants to know is, do I want a bag? That's it. And in the process, I'm just flustered and I'm frustrated and I'm, and I don't, and I feel bad and and I I don't get it because I'm a foreigner. This is Ruth, coming to a new land, new ways of doing things. She's she's not sure. You can see probably the hesitancy of understanding, okay, this is how it works, but I hope I find favor from someone to help me. And here's Boaz. He doesn't make her feel bad for being a foreigner. In fact, he does more than just not making her feel bad. He welcomes her. He he welcomes her. Do you welcome foreigners? Do you welcome outsiders like Ruth? The non-kosher people? People who don't naturally fit in our community? Do you welcome them like Boaz does? Do we as a church family come into the room and scan the room and look for people that are new, that are different, different than us? Or do we just naturally look for people that we know, people that look like us, so that we can feel comfortable? Do we miss the roofs in our own church? What about your neighborhood? your job place, do you completely overlook those who are strangers, who are foreigners? 
Do we completely overlook the immigrants? I'm gonna be bold here. I am not for closing our borders to refugees. And you can tell me all the political agenda you want. I don't see it in scripture. Are we welcoming to those through our country that are foreign? Are we like Boaz? Or are we saying, nope, I don't want them. They might do something. They might overstep, they might harm and hinder us. That's a response of someone that does not want to submit in the sovereignty of God. That's someone that says, I'm in control of my life. Boaz is not that way. He's, he's looking for someone. Are we looking for someone that's not like us to serve? I would dare say we need to be like Boaz in this response. But the story of chapter two isn't done yet. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And what you see here is Ruth, she's an incredible worker. She started in the morning, working all day with some rest and finishes in the evening, then beating out what she had gathered. And beating out means that it, she threshed out the small quantities of grain by knocking them loose with a stalk or a means of a curved stick or a club or wooden hammer. So she only works the whole day, then she works to get the food of what she's gathered. This is a full day of work for Ruth. And she takes home a, an ephah of barley, which is approximately 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Did you see that in verse 18? She took it up and went into the city. You know what this means? This means Ruth is buff. She's strong. She takes 30 pounds and throws it over her back and walks home. Yesterday, I went to Home Depot to get some concrete in a bag, and it was 60 pounds, and I'm almost crying as I take it from the thing to put it on my truck. And then I got to drive my truck home to unload it. She throws it over her back and walks. And Naomi, she, she knows she's coming, maybe from a distance, and sees Ruth, and as she's coming home, She's, she's hoping, hoping that she found success, that she has maybe one or two pounds of barley, which is a normal two-day allotment of food. That was the average, okay? And what does Ruth bring? I can see it. She walks in the room and tosses over on the table, and there's a bag of 30 to 50 pounds of barley, roughly half a month of barley that she has. Can you imagine Naomi's response to that? Where did you work? What happened today? You know, not only that, she then pulls out the doggy bag from the meal. Like, I have some leftovers here. Enjoy this. You can have it all, Naomi, because I'm full, which was probably words she never spoke. I'm sure complete astonishment. And God in that moment is saying to Naomi, do you see what I do for my children when they trust me? When they, like Ruth, when they say to me, you are my God and your people will be my people, God supplies everything they need and then some. And Naomi is completely stupefied. She responds in verse 19, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Naomi now completely stumbling over her words. Who, who? Who, who, who did you work for? You know, the, the author does something fabulous for us. Okay, we don't, it's not a movie where you can have subtitles or some way of finding out what's going on here. The author's got to use his words. And he waits till the very last of the sentence to tell us who it was. Do you, do you see the suspense building up in this sentence? The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I mean, he could have wrote and said, very simply, where'd you work today? Boaz's field. He doesn't do that. He's painting a picture for us. He wants us to see this, this incredible crescendo in the story that all that they're hoping for now has, has been supplied. And Naomi, completely floored at the grace of God, says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Suddenly, in this moment, in the midst of bitterness and difficulty and suffering and struggle and thinking that God is against her, suddenly Naomi was beginning to see the hand of God in her life, that God was not out to get her. He was very willing, in fact, to smile down with a sweet providence in spite of, in spite of her rebellion, in spite of her language, in spite of her bitterness, God gives. You know, beautiful picture. Ruth leaves in the morning with nothing, unsure what they're gonna have, and comes back completely full. God again works. And she informs Ruth that Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for the family. A kinsman redeemer was obliged to buy back his relatives if they fell into debt and had to sell themselves into slavery. Under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child for a brother who had died childless. And when this happened, the inheritance would continue to be associated with the name of the man who had died. But interestingly enough, and we'll look at this next week, Lord willing, so you're gonna have to come back, but... There were plenty of loopholes in this situation. Since Naomi's boys had left their land and married foreigners and Boaz wasn't a brother of Elimelech, there's, there's loopholes in this. The obligations that a kinsman redeemer were, they were weak for this situation when it came to Naomi and Ruth. And Boaz could have very easily not fulfilled this obligation. But I'm getting ahead of myself and next week we'll look at that. Well, the chapter ends here from verse 21 and following. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this, with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. She lived with her mother-in-law. The fact that the author points to Boaz as the Redeemer, brings to our attention this morning that we have a Redeemer. 
that we need a redeemer. And if you're paying attention as I walk through this this morning, I pointed out four ways that Boaz acts like a redeemer. I'm gonna read these for you. If you wanna write them down. A redeemer seeks the destitute as his family. A redeemer seeks the destitute as his family. Second, a redeemer saves the destitute from harm. Third, a redeemer serves the destitute at his table. And last, a redeemer showers the destitute with his grace. If you missed it along the way, if you haven't written down, go back into the chapter. You'll see it unfolding as you read it. And through it all, we need to realize that we are spiritually destitute. We're spiritually poor. We cannot save ourselves. We need a redeemer. Jesus said in the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is the point of the gospel, of realizing and acknowledging and understanding that we're spiritually bankrupt. We are destitute. We're unable to save ourselves. To know that we are destitute is to realize that I have nothing, that I am nothing, and that I can do nothing to save myself. We're all born into this world spiritually destitute. And in the story, read about another redeemer, Boaz, who who points to our redeemer, Jesus Christ. And what, what Naomi and Ruth most needed was not simply a redeemer to rescue them from their earthly poverty and danger, or even to give a husband. Instead, they needed a heavenly redeemer to rescue them from their sin. And the cost for Naomi and Ruth to have their deepest needs supplied was for Jesus to taste death in their place. The cost for us to have our deepest need met, our salvation, our need for salvation, is for a sinless one to be made sin for us so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. A redeemer seeks the destitute as his family and saves the destitute from harm and serves the destitute at his table and showers the destitute with his grace. Jesus came to bring us into the family of God. I was born as a spiritual orphan. You were too. Born hungry, crying, helpless. We had no hope. We had no family. In fact, it's worse than that. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. I was dead. I was separated from God. That was my condition. I deserved nothing but the wrath of God for my rebellion. Then something happened. God reached into my heart and took that which was dead and breathed life into it. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Amen? But God didn't just raise us to new life. I mean, he could have stopped there. He could have just done that, and that would have been enough for us to praise him for all of eternity. Not only did he predestine to save us, but in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. This holy God not only reached down into the depths of a creation to save us, but then he also adopted us. And in that adoption, we now as Christians 
have the same rights, the same claims, and the same benefits as his son. Let that bake your noodle this afternoon. Just like Jesus. And all because of what Christ did for us. We are now, as Christians, part of the family of God. I love hearing adoption stories in our world. Because every time I hear it, every time I I see it, I think of this. That God took me, a spiritual orphan, who had no family, who had no hope, and he adopted me. He brought me into the family of God. And not only adopted us, he, he protects us and he supplies for us. He gives us everything we need. The Redeemer seeks the destitute of his family and saves the destitute from harm and serves them at his table and showers them with his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And my heart is overwhelmed again this morning remembering your incredible work in my life and the lives of those here that are Christians. There is no way in and of ourselves that we could save ourselves. We were spiritually destitute. And you found a way. You're the only one that could. And as we walk through this book, God, we see the life of Ruth. And we can't help but see your fingerprints throughout this story. You're working. You're supplying, you're giving, you're, you are the best author. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you. They are still destitute. I pray that you will help them to understand that there is no hope in themselves. It's only found in Jesus Christ. That they would submit themselves to you. I pray for those believers here this morning that have forgotten this. That have tried to live their life in their own power, in their own strength, in their own wisdom. And they continue to hit blocks and roadblocks and failures. And God, you're, you're drawing them back. You're removing things from their life that they love more than you because you desire them. And that we should love you first. Help us to do that. Help us then to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. Help us to be like Boaz, unashamed of, of who we serve. Help it to flow out of our mouths that we give the gospel out to those we come in contact with. And God, we do all of this, not for us, not for our honor and glory, not for our praise, but for yours alone. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.